0: Hello and welcome to Maths on the Red Carpet, a special series of podcasts from plus.maths.org. I'm Rachel Thomas. And I'm Marianne Freiberger.
1: This podcast is coming to you from Helsinki, Finland, where the International Congress of Mathematicians is just about to start. Um, Now, the ICM takes place every four years. It's the biggest maths conference of them all, attracting people from all over the world and across all subjects. And another reason it's very famous, it's because it's here that some of the most important
0: prizes in mathematics are awarded each time. So the thousands of mathematicians usually gather from around the world, as Maren said, because of these famous and prestigious prizes, and probably the most famous of these is the Fields Medals. Now, these have got slightly unusual rules in that they're only awarded to to people who are up to the age of 40 and they recognise work that they've done, but also it's to recognise future promise. And up to four Fields Medals are awarded at each ICM and it's really exciting when they're announced.
1: Yes, so they are kind of famous prizes, but there's also some other prizes awarded at the ICM each time, which are equally prestigious. So we have the Chern Medal, which is a sort of lifetime achievement award in mathematics. There is the Gauss Prize, which is awarded for maths that has had impact outside of mathematics. Um, then there is the Abacus Medal, which used to be called the rolf nevan Prize, and that's awarded for research that has had impact on computer science. And then there's the Lilavati Prize, which is given to somebody who's done some amazing things to increase public awareness
0: of mathematics. Now, this year's ICM is a little bit different from usual. It was originally scheduled to take place in St. Petersburg in Russia, but with the war in Ukraine, plans had to quickly change. And this year, it will be a hybrid conference with the in-person event, in Helsinki, which we're just about to go to, which is the awarding of the prizes and the prize lectures. And the rest of the schedule of really fascinating talks from across the spectrum of maths is taking place online in the following days. Okay, so Marianne, should we go ahead and name the Fields Medalists? Yes, let's go. Okay, going in alphabetical order. Hugo damanel coppham of IHES in France and the University of Geneva has won the Fields Medal for solving long-standing problems in statistical physics. Jun Ha of Princeton
1: University has won a Fields Medal for his work on combinatorics and algebraic geometry.
0: James Maynard of Oxford University has won a Fields Medal for his spectacular work in number theory. And Marina Wieszovska of EPFL in Switzerland has won a
1: Fields Medal for an amazing breakthrough in the sphere-pucking theory. And she's only the second woman to win a Fields Medal. And we will hear from her later on in this podcast.
0: Okay, so that's the Fields Medals done. Marianne, who's won the other prizes? Okay, so the Chern Medal, which is the Lifetime Achievement Award, has gone to Barry
1: Mazur. The Gauss Prize has gone to Elliot Lieb. That's the prize given for work that has had impact outside of maths. The Abacus Prize has gone to Mark Braverman. So that's the prize that goes for work that has had impact on computer science. And the public engagement Lilavati Prize has gone to Nikolai Andres. So we were lucky enough to talk to most of these laureates in the run-up to the ICM. And we've got articles on all of them on our website. So if you would like to read them, go to plus.maths.org and just follow the links from the front page. But in the coming weeks, we will also release a podcast featuring each of the
0: Fields Medalists uh, that we have talked to. So it's been really exciting because this year's ICM, it's the first time we've had the opportunity to interview the prize winners in advance. Um, And it's been really exciting to learn about their work and talk to them about what motivates them and what they find beautiful or fascinating or interesting about their work. Um, So just focusing on the Fields Medalist for this podcast, um, Marianne, uh, you wrote about June Hertz's work um, in combinatorics and algebraic geometry. Um, it was really nice to talk to them, it was such an interesting topic. What, what did you enjoy learning about when you were writing about that?
1: Well one thing that I liked which is not really much to do with June Hertz's work is just the fact that he's sort of a late starter in mathematics because you know many of the brilliant mathematicians you think of them as having been brilliant at school and always been on top of the class and so on but Jun Ha actually started came to mathematics quite late. So um, he wasn't that great at it at primary school, apparently. And he was more interested in poetry in secondary school or in high school. And he got he got into maths not because he suddenly discovered some mathematical problem that he liked or anything, but because he saw that a mathematician who he'd read an autobiography of was given a talk or a lecture course at his university. So he just decided to go. And it was that kind of experience of this person talking about their mathematical research that
0: got him drawn in. So that's quite interesting. And didn't June say that the lecturer was literally talking about the research they'd done the day before? And so it was like hearing about the process of research happening almost in front of his eyes.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of quite unusual. I mean, we for everybody who's done maths degrees, you you know, sometimes the lecture courses can be very much textbook, you know, so you go through the established mathematics and dare I say it, sometimes it's even a little bit boring, but um, in this case, apparently the lecturer just decided to talk about his own research and literally the things he'd done the day before. So that's a very kind of refreshing view of mathematics, I suppose. And in terms of June Ha's work, I just found it interesting. I mean, what he said is that he's he was interested due to his late start and his kind of lack of Mathematical education, he was really interested in things that he said he could touch. So that sort of small things, so questions involving finite things, small objects, which are kind of covered by combinatorics, which is essentially like the art of counting stuff. Um, So he was interested in those problems on the one hand. On the other hand, he was interested in geometry, um, because in a way that's also something that we, we feel we can touch and see, all these simple geometrical shapes, at least we feel we can touch them and see them. And that's another aspect that he was interested in, especially geometric shapes that can be described by equations and things. So that's algebraic geometry. So it's it's nice to have these two sort of interests and then weave them together.
0: Yeah, it was fascinating work. And Rachel, you
1: studied the work of Hugo domino Um What was that like? What did you enjoy about that?
0: Oh, that was so interesting. Um, So his work is in statistical physics. And like you were saying, he had these two motivations. So he always loved, he always had an urge to understand the world around him, which draws you to physics. But then he said he was really attracted to kind of the reassuring solidity of mathematics and mathematical proof that once you have a result, you know it's done, you can rely on it being true. And then he had, so he went on and did maths, but then he had this happy moment where he realised there was this area of mathematics called statistical physics, which was bringing together physics and mathematics. Um, So that was really nice. Um, And so you can go to the article to read uh, the full um, description of his work that we have there. Um, But I got totally (laughs) drawn in. He described this interesting problem he'd worked on which is on something called self-avoiding walks on a lattice. So if you think of standing in front of a honeycomb of a bee and if you're looking straight on you can see all the hexagons fitting together neatly kind of tiling the plane. So if you think of the walls of the hexagon that's like a hexagonal lattice and you can imagine starting at one of the corners and then walking along all the line segments to kind of make a path across that hexagonal lattice. And he was interested in walks that don't intersect with themselves. You never retread any of your paths. And this is very simple, very simple problem to state. And he was interested in how many different walks you can of a certain number of steps across a lattice. And um, that seems really obvious. And he said, you know, even, even a kid could do it. You sit them in front of a hexagonal lattice. So being the, academic equivalent of a kid. I sat in front of a lattice and sat there drawing paths of length one, which is three, and then paths of length two and paths of length four, and got really um, engrossed. It was really fascinating. And then the tricky thing is when these paths are long enough to start circling back and intersecting themselves. And uh, yeah, so I I really enjoyed learning about the, the extent of his work, but I also, rarely had the opportunity to actually sit down and have a little play um, myself which was great fun so I really enjoyed doing that
1: yeah so it's nice when you can play around with things yourself now one of the other
0: fields medalists
1: James Maynard he works in an area where playing around is also possible because some of the problems are
0: very easy to state it's because it's number theory so tell us a little bit about that so yeah James Maynard's Work in number theory. one of the things he's m- most known for is the advances he's made in something called the twin prime conjecture. And again, really easy problem to state, but this proof has been elusive to mathematicians for centuries, if not thousands of years. So uh, if you think of prime numbers, primes are the numbers that are divisible only by one and themselves and any number, any whole number can be written as a product of primes. And this means that prime numbers are thought of as the building blocks of numbers. And so that's why mathematicians are really interested in prime numbers and they're interested in how they're distributed along the number line. There's infinitely many, we've known that for thousands of years, but there's no discernible pattern yet for how they're spread across the number line. And usually as you go further up the number line, They get more and more sparse, but there's a conjecture called the twin prime conjecture, which says infinitely often, despite them getting further and further spread apart up the number line, you get pairs of prime numbers that are as close as they can possibly be. And because prime numbers are odd numbers, that's separated by a distance of two. So that's the twin prime conjecture. Twin primes are these pairs separated by just two. What are the first few twin primes then as an example? So the first few twin primes are three and five, and then you've got five and seven, the twin primes, you've got 11 and 13 are twin primes. And uh, this, that's quite easy to figure out. It's quite easy to figure out the, the twin primes when they're low numbers, but actually it's incredibly difficult to Uh, find twin primes and they take lots of computation power and they have found enormous pairs of twin primes but they don't know if they've found all the twin primes up to a certain number and there's certainly no proof yet that there are infinitely many twin primes so what James Maynard's work did was really um, take some really developed methods that could take that prove forward and uh, they made remarkable progress. And uh, the conjecture isn't proved yet, but we're a lot closer now than we were before James and his colleagues made these advances in the last 10, 15 years.
1: Okay, so you can go and read about the work of all of these people we just talked about by going to plus.maths.org and following the links. And in the coming weeks, we'll have podcasts with some of them talking about their work as well. So now let's turn to the fourth Fields Medalist, Marina Wiesowska. Um, She's only the second woman ever to win a Fields Medal. And she's been honored for a breakthrough on a problem that is also quite easy to explain at least the inspiration for it is easy to explain. Basically it concerns the question of imagine you have a whole lot of spheres so for example round oranges which you want to pack into a box into a very big box and you want to know the arrangement of oranges that will mean that you can fit as many oranges as possible into the box right because you can't fill all of the space in the box with oranges because they're round, so there'll always be gaps. So how should you arrange them um, so that you can fill as much space as possible? And what proportion of space can you fill with that optimal arrangement? Um, that's sort of the base problem from which Viasovskas' work started. We were lucky enough to meet her in 2018 at an event at the Royal Society in London. And here she is talking about the problem in her own words.
2: So it's one of the classical geometric problems, and uh, so the problem is that suppose that you have a very big box and a supply of uh, spheres, and just to make this uh, problem mathematically easier, let's suppose that spheres are all equal, and so we try so they are equally uh, have equal size and also hard, so we cannot squeeze them, so they they. preserve their shape and so we put as many spheres as we can into this box and also somehow we to make our life just easier of course if we take one concrete box and everything will also something will depend on the shape of it we will have some border effects but it's too difficult for mathematicians we always try to idealize our problems so what we do we just take a very very big box and so the, then somehow it's intuitively clear, uh, but mathematically maybe not. Actually, one needs to work a little bit to see this uh, that we will have some sort of same maximal possible density. And so if our box is very big, then the, our answer about the like number of maximal number of spheres it will only depend on the volume of the box. And so the question is how, how to find this constant, the best packing constant.
1: What's the answer in dimensions two and three? Which are the ones So in
2: dimension two, it's uh, like the best packing is this honeycomb packing. If you uh, imagine a bees hive, and of course in bees hive, every, I don't know, what's an English word for it? Like every, every cell, it's actually, it's a hexagon, but we could somehow imagine that it's not a hexagon, but rather a a small uh, disk. And then we can pack disks like this, and uh, this way we'll cover like slightly more than 90% of the area by these equally sized discs. And then in Dimension 3? In Dimension packing. 3 this was known as a Kepler conjecture, so it remained open for well, 300 years. And uh, uh, in Dimension 3 we actually don't have only one best packing. We have many diff- equally good packings, but one of them you can uh, see on the market when you stuck oranges in the pyramids. So this is the densest possible way to stack. What's the density there? And the density is about seventy-four percent. So it's already going down.
0: Okay. So Marina Viazovska's work involves higher-dimensional sphere packings. How does that work?
1: Well, okay. So if you think about it, what is a sphere? Um, So a, a sphere is all the points that are at the same distance from a given point, which is the center point, right? So if you say that distance is one, then what you get is a sphere of radius one. Um, and as Marina said, if we're just looking in two dimensions, then the so-called sphere, sphere is actually just a disc because it's, it's it's bounded by a circle, which is all the points at a given distance from the center. And then if you take the inside as well, what you have is a disc. Um, and then in three dimensions, you have a sphere. And if you fill it in, you have, that gives you just a ball. Um, and in, in two and three dimensions, people might remember from school, every point has, is given by coordinates. So it's two coordinates when, when we're in two dimensions on the plane, and it's three coordinates when we're in three dimensions. Now, even though we can't visualize higher dimensions, there, there's nothing stopping you defining points, defining four dimensional space as consisting of points who, who are given, which are given by four coordinates each, right? Um, And you can't see that, but you can imagine it. And then in a similar way as in two and three dimensions, you can define a notion of distance as well. So that means you can define a notion of a sphere or what's called a hypersphere because it's in higher dimensions. Because again, you simply say it's all the points at the same distance of a given point, which is the center. So you can't see it, but
0: you can define it, no problem whatsoever. So you define, and those points are these ones which now take four coordinates to describe or five coordinates to describe or more coordinates to describe depending on what dimension but they're still all the same distance from the center point so that's why it is this higher dimensional version of a sphere exactly that's what it is and once you have this notion of a um, higher dimensional version
1: of a sphere you can ask the same questions about what's the densest packing so You know, what's the arrangement of these hyperspheres that occupies most
0: of that higher dimensional space? Exactly the same question. And this actually has practical real-life applications as well, which is quite exciting and perhaps surprising. So, for example, in communications technology. And you can find out more about that by going to plus.maths.org and searching for our article, Communication and Ball Packing. But now back to the maths so Marina's breakthrough was that she solved the sphere packing problem in dimensions 8 and dimension 24 so
2: we asked her what makes these dimensions special uh, so here so everybody asks this and I don't know it's a mystery why why are they so special because in these dimensions we have those two uh, extremely great configurations which we don't find in any other dimensions and so yeah those configurations are so good that our uh, methods which fails in all other dimensions in these dimensions it gives a sharp estimate and if you are asking why I I don't know.
1: Right so Marina showed that in dimension eight you can fill around 25 percent of space with hyperspheres and in dimension 24 it's only around 9.2
0: percent. Okay so that's the first fields medalist work, Marina Vyasovska's work that we have looked at in detail in a podcast, Um, to read about all the other fields medalists you can go to plus.maths.org and follow the links Um, we are literally about to uh, head off to the prize ceremony and hear the fields medalists and all the other prize winners being announced but uh, if you'd like to get a sense of what it's like, um, last week we published our podcast from the first day of the Rio de Janeiro ICM in 2018. If you'd like to get a sense of what it feels like uh, in the moment, um, you can go back and have a listen to that episode of, of the podcast. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll, we'll be in touch with you again soon with uh, our report live from the ICM in Helsinki, Finland in 2022. See you soon. See you soon. Bye. Bye.